I've seen complete lame ducks with both backgrounds. People who who just are awful at their job. I've seen the MBAs who accidented into the position and should have never held it. And I've also seen the technical people who aspire to it. They they uh, they have big ambition and they they want to be that CISO, right? But they never take the time to learn the uh, to learn the business. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Andy Bennett, CISO at Apollo Systems, former deputy CISO for the entire state of Texas, and an all-around great guy. Andy is a straight shooter who is part of the cybersecurity world, not for all the fame and fortune we all know the job entails, not for the massive army of loyal fans constantly clamoring for our autographs, but rather for the far more humble reasons of protecting people and doing the right thing. Andy, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Well, thanks for having me. It, it's been far too long. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. It has indeed been far too long, and I'm very grateful that you're here now with us. So let's dive in to our questions. The first question I've got for you is um, in light of the Joe Sullivan case, in light of the Drizzly case, in light of the brand newest one where the FTC just sued Chegg for, I think, a series of four breaches, uh, something about like that. But the question is, should the CISO or shouldn't the CISO be the one responsible for deciding whether a breach gets reported. Let's start there. So my gut reaction, my first real straightforward is absolutely not. Since when does the CISO make, or even the CEO at some levels, make the determination of what is and is not required under the law? And your obligations to report are are what you would be required under law against regulation, against even industry standards. And the CISO is not the arbiter. Sometimes they are the assessor certainly not the arbiter of those things. And so my gut reaction there is, uh, in those discussions, where's general counsel? Where's the the business leads? Because uh, it's always been my position that the CISO is in a position of advisory, in a position of, of helping hold the organization as a whole accountable, but ultimately makes a recommendation. And the business has to either take action on that recommendation or not take action on that recommendation. It's the It's business risk that's at play not CISO risk. It's not called CISO risk. It's called business risk. And so my, my gut reaction first is no, and I'm sure you have more leading questions for this, but uh, the, the, the CISO has a part to play, but is not the final decision maker in Andy's not humble opinion. All right. Okay. So let's, let's explore that and poke into that a little bit, because it, it's interesting when you say CISO is an advisor, talk to general counsel. One of my immediate reactions to that statement is the fact that I tend to treat general counsel like advisors. In other words, I'm the CISO, and I'm sitting here looking at a third-party contract, and I've got pressure from the business to sign this new third party up for whatever reason it is, and that third party is is holding out for some cyber something, something, something in the contract or whatever, and or, or I'm holding out for the cyber something, something, something in the contract, whatever the relationship might be, whichever direction it goes. Either way, there are cyber concerns on the table, and I have to decide – uh, if I'm willing to compromise on these cyber requirements and concerns for the for the sake of the business, 
or if I'm going to be the one to dig in my heels and hold firm. Well, even if I decide to dig in my deal, dig in my heels and hold firm, I'm still ultimately making my recommendation and the business has the right to ignore me. Right Mm -hmm. now, I'm not saying ignore your counsel, but there's a parallel there, right? Lawyers, especially when it comes to contract time, for example, for example, are there to talk about risk, right? They're, they're, they're risk professionals just like we are. Mm-hmm. If you accept this contract that the other guys threw over the fence and sign it as is, the following risks are on the table, right? Like, well, they could say this and you could do that and then this could happen and da-da-da-da-da. So why don't you change this language to that and that language to this? Whenever you go through a contract review with a lawyer, that's what they're doing. They're playing the risk game just like we play. Absolutely. Well, there's times that I'm the business and I want the deal to go through. And the lawyers tell me, oh, well, if they're not going to accept that change, you know, don't don't take the deal. Don't don't sign the contract. Well, you know what? There have been times that I've said to counsel, appreciate that. I love your input. You're great. You're doing a great job. I'm signing anyway. Um, I have signed against counsel's uh, wishes. I have done it as the CISO. But in concurrence with the wishes of the business, right? Yes. Because yes. that that was that was the other half of that point. Because the the relationship with general counsel for for a CISO in any kind of complex environment is dynamic and complex. Because sometimes they're the advisor, sometimes they're the decision maker. They always have to be a partner. If you aren't working with your general counsel, if you aren't uh, actively engaging them as a partner in that decision making process, that recommendation making process, uh, you're doing it wrong. But uh, but we both came back to the same place at the end. There was. It's ultimately the business, right? Mm-hmm. In support of the business and concurrence with the business, in alignment with the business. And uh, general counsel, general counsel has their job to make too, uh, in terms of n- not just ignoring blatant risks that are on the table, but but it still came back to the business for both right. of us. Yeah, fair enough. That's that's a good that's a good conclusion. I'll take that one. All right. So let's say um, we're talking about this sort of this external, you know duty to report and these sorts of things. Let's focus internally a little bit. Here's another good question, another good leading question. Um, the sock. Should the CISO own the sock? Well, that is now, see, that's a great question. And I have a less firm opinion on this particular one, right? And I see you, I see you grinning like the Cheshire cat over there. Yes. And no, uh, because <laughs> uh, here's the consulting answer, right? Yep. And I've gotten a lot of practice in the consulting answer over the last two years is it depends. Uh, it depends on the organizational position, uh, the defined responsibilities, the needs of the organization. It, in a place where a CISO was brought in as a compliance and oversight driver, there may be less of a need for the SOC to live under that that individual or under that role. But in the case where a CISO was brought in as an operational change maker, because the organization had so far been unable to provide for its own security needs or even to contract for those security needs, that's where the SOC or the SOC function, because it could be outsourced, Mm -hmm. has to report to the CISO because the CISO is the one with the expertise. Expertise can take many forms and live in many places in the organization, and it isn't necessarily prescriptive or or required that the SOC live under the CISO so long as yet again, just like general counsel, I'm, I'm already detecting a theme. So long as they're a partner in the security process and everybody understands the roles, the placements and works together uh, at the state, for example, uh, at the state, the CISO's office does not control the SOC, but works very, very closely with the state SOC. And who does control it there? Operations, infrastructure. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I was I was thinking almost I, when I asked it, it was almost a, a, a devil's advocate sort of position of who's watching the Watchmen, right? Like, if 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 the CISO is the one chartered with securing the things, uh, do you want the CISO running the effort that uh, demonstrates whether or not the things have been secured? Do you want the CISO running the effort that'll uncover where the insecurities might have been systematically enforced? Um, you know, like during an investigation, it's super easy to cover up when your team did the screw up, right? Uh, that kind of a thing. Like I was, I was, I was coming at it more from that angle when I asked the question of, you know, it's a fascinating counterpoint. You know, you don't let you don't let uh, the police investigate themselves. You call in an internal affairs, right? There's a separate department whose job. So you lean on folks like internal audit and such. Yes, keep, yes. Keep going. Finish because yeah. I, I think I think you might be going somewhere. So so the idea there is, you know, it, it, yes, it's still the police, and I'll give you that, but it's a separate group. You don't have the officers on the street investigating their behavior on the street. You call in a group that's isolated from those officers, a group that might even have a reputation of uh, not being respected or liked by the street officers. Like, like there's there's even some tension there. That's good. Um, you want re- healthy respect. You don't want people to cross professional boundaries, but you definitely want that group to feel more like an outsider group to the group that's being investigated. You don't want it to just be, oh, hey, Internal Affairs is here. Let's all crack a bottle of whiskey and have a laugh over how we killed that guy. You know, it's not that kind of party, right? No, it's not that kind of party. I thought you were going to add something else there. It's not that kind of party, uh, but it depends on how bad that thing is. If it's routine incident response, that, that's pretty normal, right? The supervisor of the of the police in question do the first investigation. They do the first cursory uh, in, in all but the most egregious cases, they do, the supervisors handle the first level. And to, to pursue the, the police officer's analogy here, the CISO in this case would be no different than the supervisor and the supervisory chain in this, in this particular example. It's right. not until something became particularly egregious that you would need to go to an outside party, whether that's general counsel who has a retained investigator, whether that's the internal audit department or, or the external contracted auditor, mm-hmm. or whether that, whether that is an incident response firm even uh, that, uh, that is going to come in and investigate or an assessment firm, pick your firm for your incident type that we're, that we've had such a big snafu that we need the investigation. And so in, in that regard, I, I would say uh, it still can work. There is a who watches the watcher question, but that's always who watches the watchers who watch the watchers. You can go right, down the rabbit right. hole, right? Yeah, exactly. So it, was, I, it was it was the devil's advocate sort of absolutely line of but questioning, I, I, but but it's one to spark thought. I always come back to the expertise though, because the function has to live in the organization where it can best serve the organization and support that business. Okay. And so if the function cannot thrive for and it doesn't even matter what the reason is, if it cannot thrive where it is. And if it's in infrastructure, then it needs to move to the CISO. And if it's not meeting the needs of the organization under the CISO, then you need to explore another home for it. And it's okay to let a function go. It's um, If you are truly focused on the business, then you're not focused on close holding any given yeah. function. You are focused on doing and taking and keeping the things that are most beneficial to the business that enable you to deliver the outcomes of the CISO, which is ultimately ensuring and assuring the security posture of the organization. I love it. One man's empire builder is another man's business enabler, if you're not careful, right? In yes. other words, that that business forward mindset that you're espousing, I'm 1,000% behind that. This idea that you put the business first in your own organization second and yourself third. And, you know, it, it should go business, organization, team, you. You should be the very last in that chain. And then we have all worked with those people that were – 
me first, my team second, my organization third, business last, who were just vying and bucking for fiefdoms and territory and scrabbling over the walls to seize the resources from the other guy. And, you know, we've all worked with that guy. Um, but it's amazing to me how often when you have conversations with those folks that they don't recognize themselves for what they are. Sometimes it's true, willful, just land grabbing. And other times it's actually um, there's a certain amount of oblivion. These are the folks that will tell you they are doing it for the business. Like like they they in the name of the business, I should blah, 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 blah. In the name of the business, I need more blah, 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 blah. Like they see themselves. No one as the else soul. can do this. I'm the right. only one. I'm that. I'm the yeah, I'm the savior in this moment, and I'm the only one that can do that thing. That yeah. there is so much ego rife in that in, in that oblivion, right? Because it, to truly think you're the one that can single handedly do the thing and therefore you deserve all the resources to do the thing. You may not be a land grabber, but you sure are lost in your own ego for sure. And and that and that kind of ties back to this conversation. I'm sorry, I'm kind of wandering here on this one, but um, it, it ties back to that notion of the who's watching the watchers. You want the watchers to have the business first always mindset. And if you have the wrong personality at the helm, that's going to make a big distinction as to where that sock should possibly land and reside. Right? Mm-hmm. I think I think you know I, I, I'm a big fan of never organizing my business around personalities. In general, that's one of my golden rules, right? The cult of personality phenomenon happens. You get this great leader that everybody loves who's a brilliant genius at whatever, and you organize whole departments around this person's genius, and then that person leaves the company. And now you're left with a really weird organizational structure that makes no sense because the personality that it was centered around is now gone, right? So so don't orchestrate and engineer around personalities. And yet that's one of those moments when I break that rule. I will take things away from personalities and I will organize to contain and control a personality. I won't organize to bolster and build one, but I will organize to eclipse one sometimes. Well, you have to sometimes. And that's, that's again, that's, that's the business focus. You do what's right for the business. So I'll counter and say, should the CISO report to the CIO? You know, this one gets talked to death and I ultimately fall on the, I'm going to, I'm going to do the consulting answer too. I'm a consultant now as well. I am going to fall on the um, it depends answer as well, and here's why. Yes, there's an inherent conflict of interest kind of scenario that could exist. Um, it's in the CIO's interest to have uptime. It's in the CISO's interest to have the things patched. There's an immediate and obvious conflict right there, right? CISO needs it patched. CIO needs it to stay up. You can't patch it without taking it down or risking even further downtime, yada, yada, yada. Classic example of CIO versus CISO needs, desires, goals, and what they're measured by. But back to our model that we seem to both keep gravitating to in this conversation of putting the business forward. If both people are true executives and both people are actually putting the business forward, then it doesn't matter which one reports to which one. If they're peers, one reports to the other, the other reports to the one, all that's mm-hmm. irrelevant if, if, they're true, if they're true business professionals. That's, I guess that's, that's ultimately where I come down to. I've reported to CIOs. I've been peers to CIOs. Uh, I've never had a CIO report to me, but I have had CISOs who have experienced that. Uh, I, I know folks that have been both. I've actually been both, in fact, in one body, which is a really weird one. I, I couldn't agree any, it, more, by the way. And, and I also cheated because I already knew the answer. We've had this conversation before. But since since the theme is should the CISO, and that is one of the quintessential should the CISO questions, I figured I'd make sure one of us threw it on the table. But if if both people are strategic leaders with with the business in mind, it won't make a difference at all. Yeah. 
And, and I think that's true of the sock placement. Um, again, if everyone's putting the business forward, it's, it's not even really relevant. It's a very interesting thought exercise, though, because I think the vast majority of CISOs on the planet aren't even going to question that the sock is their jurisdiction. And it's an interesting thought exercise to challenge that thinking, right? So, so let's see. Let's see if we can come up with another good one. Should the CISO have an MBA? Ooh. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> totally left Should, field zinger. I don't, I don't have an MBA. I don't either. Yeah, I don't <laughs> but I sometimes think I should. <laughs> I, I feel like I've earned one through the school of hard knocks sometimes, and I've certainly read a lot of the MBA books. I have MBAs who work for me, and I and and my boss has an MBA too. Um, I'm surrounded by MBAs now that I think about it, mm-hmm. but I don't have one. I've got a master's degree in computer science, information, insurance, and security, right in the discipline. I uh, and I have an undergraduate degree in history. I think that what is more important is the ability to understand the business, to take the time to learn the business. If you're if you're a lifelong learner, if you're a student who can actually apply the lessons you learn throughout your career and and focus on the business again, business forward, um, the MBA the MBA comes as a clinical practice and not as as books. But you got to put in the time, right? You got to yeah. take the time to learn the terms of business, like. If you find a if you find a, a security operations director and ask them what gap is. Yeah. Right? How many are gonna know? In fact, that's a great LinkedIn survey question. You yeah. do it, I do it, I don't care who does it. Somebody needs to put that up and say, security directors, not CISOs, do you know what gap is? Yeah. Spell it properly, all that stuff, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh and I'm not even gonna say it just in case anybody's taking that poll after listening to this, but Gap is one of the languages of business. Yes, it is. Do they speak it? Do they? And and even if they're not fluent in it, do they know what it is? So that when somebody mentions it, they're not caught completely off guard thinking it's a fashion statement. Let's pause right there real quick for my over-the-top Texas-style commercial for our sponsor. Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy. And our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things. And it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment, devices, users, software, and more, to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com slash get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash a dash tour. Yeah, I yeah, it's, that's fair. That's totally fair. Um, and I like that approach and angle as well. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. I've got two good friends, uh, both of whom were very powerhouse CISOs, both of them powerhouse CISOs. Neither one grew up on the technical side. Neither one got the technical degrees. You and I both have a liberal arts undergrad, mm-hmm. and you and I both have an information assurance master's. So it's a very, very parallel here, these, these two folks in this conversation. Um, these two... Um, got business degrees, business backgrounds, finance backgrounds, banking backgrounds, and became CISOs coming from that perspective. And I made a casual post on LinkedIn a little while back about this idea that um, I feel like coming from a technical background is the easiest path for a CISO. In other words, not not the easiest way to become the CISO, but if you are a CISO looking back, you know those skills make your job easier than coming up through the business would make your job easier. That was my position. Now, this is coming from somebody that grew up on the technical side of the house. So, of course, I'm saying it was easy. I did it. It was easy, right? Um, One of my friends, one of these two friends, took a little umbrage with that because I was positioning it as, um, just like you said, you can teach yourself the business, 
but it's a lot harder to teach yourself the technology is what I said in my LinkedIn post. Mm-hmm. And she came back to me and said, oh, I'm coming at it from completely the other side. I grew up business. I had to teach myself the tech on the fly. My formal education and background is on the business side. So we're coming at it from completely opposite. And she had completely a different experience than I did. So it's interesting. I've seen complete lame ducks with both backgrounds. People who yes. who just are awful at their job. I've seen the MBAs who accidented into the position and should have never held it because yeah. they, they, they should be running some sort of product development in a non-security world kind of thing or or managing a large team of people who do manufacturing or something. I don't know. And I've also seen the technical people who aspire to it. They they uh, they have big ambition and they, they want to be that CISO, right? But they never take the time to learn the uh, to learn the business and they end up in a position where they cannot contribute to the business. They always fall back to the technical they talk CVEs instead mm-hmm. of instead of 10Ks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? They, they cannot get out of the tech. And instead of even understanding what a strategy is, tactical is the highest level they can ever get to. Yeah. And, and those folks, when they accident into the kind of job where strategy is a must, which is any CISO of any organization of any complexity, if you can't step into a strategic thinking mindset, you're destined for failure, and it happens every single time. Sometimes it takes six months, sometimes it takes three years, but it always ends in a fireball. Yeah, that that's uh, that's that's a great analysis, and I've worked with the uh, individual you're describing. I have I have been there and seen that one myself. Um, okay, switching gears completely, another left field zinger. Should the CISO be mentoring individual contributors in their team? One hundred percent. Oh, that was too easy. That was too, too easy. easy. Like, I don't even know if I need to go into that one. Um, but talk, you talk uh, about the why, because I'll give you the devil's advocate, uh, you know, the counter on this one, which I don't agree with either, frankly. But the counter is, you know, oh, you're the executive. You should be mentoring directors and folks that are nearing your role. You shouldn't be mentoring individual contributors. Like, A, you don't have time for that. B, you know, they're, they're not going to understand your experiences. You're not going to understand theirs. You know, I've heard a million arguments against it that I thought fell flat. But But what are the arguments for it? Well, I mean, first I put my money where my mouth is. I spent uh, an, a, a little, little over an hour with two individual contributors uh, after five o'clock today because mm-hmm. it matters. That time matters. Absolutely. Those are the guys that are actually doing the work, not the people who are directing the work. Yeah. Um, those are not people who are accomplishing through others. Like I accomplish through others who accomplish through others. The people who are doing the work are deserving of, of your attention. The people who are doing the work uh, have ambitions and you need to find them, right? Don't just grow your director. Don't just groom your replacement. Because if they're, uh, if you're of an organization of any kind of size, they are going to also find other jobs elsewhere in the organization or outside. And they should. That's called progress. They have a right to progress in their career. And yes, you should give them some time too. They deserve that. If they're putting in the work, you should give them back some of your time and work. Um, but somebody helped me come up. Like I, I didn't get here alone. No, and none of us do. And anybody who thinks they did is needs to take a moment of introspection. Somebody helped every, every time that doesn't diminish your accomplishments in any way, but it needs to be recognized. And so if you go and you find those individual contributors on your team, both the ones who are just rock stars and deliver and are, are not trying to become the CISO, 
help them be better, help them understand what you need from them and you will get more. You will get more than you ever asked for, ever thought you might get out of them because all they really need is the same thing all of us need, which is context and uh, an understanding of why they're doing the thing they're doing. I've asked lots of people to to do the uh, to do something that was counterintuitive to them, to do the thing they didn't want to do. But after I explained what the reason was, and sometimes I explain after they do it, and other times I explain before they do it, and that's a situational thing. But but you'll get so much more. All right, this is going to lead into a more tricky one. Mm. Should the CISO be sharing? And I'm talking transparency here. The scarier realities of the political landscape, the business drivers, the business needs, the arguments upstairs, how much of that should the CISO share with the individual contributors? Let's start with the upstairs. Let's work backwards. Let's start with the upstairs. There's two different types of things happening upstairs. One are strategic discussions that might set the direction that will set the direction for the company Mm -hmm. and... If that direction is going to affect the security posture or needs of the organization, the individual contributors and the directors have a not just a right but a need to know because they need to be able to get ahead of that. But there are other things that happen, like when there's at the executive level, if there's a disagreement and the CISO loses the argument, shall we say, mm-hmm. the CISO and no executive take the title out. No executive should ever go back to their team and say, well, I advocated for it, but we, um, we're going to do it their way. I had nothing to do with this decision, but we're going to do it anyway. No. When, yeah. you, when you as a group, when you as an executive team come to a decision, there's a, even if you were just ordered to, I've been ordered to do something, but once I took it back to my team, because you always have, people always forget they do have an option. If you feel strongly enough in protest, you can quit. Yep. But once you go back to your team and you give the orders, you those are yours. Those are yours and you endorse them. That you Those are yours and you endorse them. And you stand behind them or you get out of the way if those are the marching orders. And so that's that's the that's the thing that you don't share. Yep. If there was a disagreement and it was fraught with anger and rife and who knows what other five dollar right. words that might describe a bad process or bad feelings. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. do not pass those to your team. That is bad leadership. I love it. That's a great that's a great piece of it. So I was specifically getting after some more of the I'll try to think of some good examples. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in my CTO role. A couple of developers on my team, managing developers. Developers more than infosec folks tend to uh, want to stay in their bubble, stay in their lane, heads down, you know, put in the earbuds, no distractions, outer world is shut off. I'm in my groove, I'm jamming out, I'm writing my code. Don't interrupt me. Leave me alone. I just want to write my code. Tell me what my parameters are. Give me some UX design guidelines, and I'm off to the races, right? Like, like, like that's that's generally speaking, the developer mindset versus say somebody that's you know configuring firewalls is running around the network and talking to network people and doing a lot more social interaction and a lot more learning of the environment around them and these kinds of things. So, um, I had a developer who was very much of that ilk. And she was an absolute genius, and she was incredibly good at what she did. And her previous leadership had completely sheltered her from the bigger goings-on of the business. Mm -hmm. And I saw that she was completely sheltered, and I thought, on the one hand, there's a certain amount of, again, developers seek that sort of sheltering. But on the other hand, um, wouldn't it be cool for her to recognize the impact some of her work is doing? Like, 
if you're not sharing the upstairs at all, you're also not sharing the ripple effect of your work. And so I actually asked her. I, I didn't just make the decision. I had a conversation with her and told her, I get the impression that your previous leadership wasn't sharing much. I'm generally much more transparent and will generally share much more. Where are you at with this? What do you want? Well, how do you feel? And so we talked it through, and it became a dialogue. And I ended up ultimately bringing her more than probably she wanted in the end. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but it was after a conversation of trying to get that right and trying to strive for that, you know, where that where that needle should be on that particular gauge. But I felt like it was an incredibly important thing I was doing to have that conversation and invite them into that bigger arena. There's there's this whole world of stuff going on. There's a business partnership being discussed, and this little snippet of code you were asked to write that felt like a deviation from what you were working on was actually allied around an entire partnership possibility. Let me tell you about the partnership possibility and what this one change in your work week means for the future of the business. Those kinds of conversations. And um, I feel like those kinds of conversations should be had. And then I think it boils down to, for me, and this is, you know, again, having that dialogue with each individual player, you're going to find that people have tolerance thresholds for the amount of stuff from upstairs they want to hear about. Mm -hmm. And and I'll work with them individually. To, it's it's the old platinum rule. Don't treat them like you want to be treated. Treat them like they want to be treated. Absolutely. And I lead with transparency, and I start with that. And I'll tell people, if this is too much and you don't want to hear this stuff, let me know. If it's not enough and you want to hear more of it, let me know. And and I kind of go from there. Yeah, well, and that's the bottom up that I, yeah, I said. Let's take it from the top first and then from the bottom up. You have to – you just described it perfectly – you have to understand the needs of the team, even the ones that they don't ask for, but you can see them. If you're paying attention to your team, if you're staying in tune with your team, you can see where the gaps are and what information might actually help them do better. Mm -hmm. What information might actually help them uh, move faster, um, make cleaner decisions, right? Because there's there's oftentimes in uninformed teams, there's churn. Yes. There's, there's, they lack the context that they need to really focus in and quickly make a decision. And uh, I have this uh, this philosophy that I've adopted from uh, from our president, Dave Tyson, which is bias to action. People cannot bias to action unless you enable them to. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's the level of transparency you should strive for. Not so much transparency that every little hiccup in the boardroom trickles down to the help desk, but enough transparency that everybody understands that they make an impact. Everybody understands their work matters, that there's uh, places they can go in the organization, that mm -hmm. they're not stuck in, in one chair for 20 years if they stay at this company. That And in order to achieve whatever outcome they want, uh, which you should be asking too in terms of career development and whatnot, but in order to achieve those things, set good expectations. That's another part of transparency. It's You can't you can't expect people to live up to something you've not told them and people will live up to your lowest expectations of them. So set high expectations, be willing to reasonable, but high expectations and be willing to hold them accountable. Transparency is a key component of that. And if you, if you're always close holding, you're never enabling. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's good stuff right there. All right. We are at the 30-minute mark roughly. Uh, do you have one should the CISO or shouldn't the CISO question for me? Or do we wanna do we wanna call this one a wrap? So we discussed the sock. Yes. Should the CISO own identity? Oh yes. 
I'm just going to go with a firm, solid yes on that one. Now, obviously, your mileage may vary. There might be exceptions. We have to have all grown-ups in the room, all the other caveats and disclaimers we had before. But I think I think ultimately identity should reside with the CISO and not the CIO. These days, it's too integral and too much the core of absolutely every security, everything. And it's 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 the flow of what should and shouldn't and what is and isn't across the entire technology landscape. It's at the core of it all. And without identity being tied to security function more closely than it's tied to operational function, you're you're putting yourself at a lot of security risk not doing it that way. Now, again, CIO's a good grown-up, CISO's a good grown-up, CIO already owns it. Don't go fight for it and steal it. You know, it's like that that kind of thing's not required. But if you're architecting a new solution, uh, you know, in terms of how you're organizing your infrastructure, your teams, et cetera, et cetera, and you've got the choice, heck yeah. Throw identity over the fence to the to the security side of the house. See, we usually agree so much, and and I don't think I agree with you on this one. I think oh, that wow. I think identity. I think the ability to tie into the uh, the authentication and identity systems matters extremely. I think that the technical enablement that it provides, security tools and visibility and control and all those things, matters a lot. But I also was a director of IAM in a past life in a very large shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, And anybody who looks at my LinkedIn profile will instantly know which job that was. But uh, there's so much other operational churn that happens Mm -hmm. that it it generally, in most places, makes it a bad fit, in my experience, for a security shop. Because it ties in so tightly also, and it's the same thing, it ties in so tightly with the ITSM functions, the, mm, the IT mm-hmm. service management functions, there's tickets, there's reset passwords, there's um, provisioning against business systems, there's all kinds of daily operations that frequently gets neglected. Now, you might be able to bifurcate that function, separate the ticket mashers from the the engineers, that's possible. Um, but most shops don't do that. Most of them keep them pretty close together so they can throw things over the fence to each other. And, and so in general, I, I usually think of IAM as living in operations with a very tight liaison. Like if you don't have a security liaison program in your organization, IAM is a great place to start one. You make IAM and security. I like when I was an IAM director, I would attend the security meetings as an honorary team member, but I worked right. for operations. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a brilliant bridging point for sure. If it's, if it's uh, that kind of really, you know, if, if it's that kind of organizational structure, that is most definitely one of the key bridges, right? There's other key bridges too. Um, you know, I actually owned, I was a CISO one time who owned network. The network was mine because the network was comprised of next gen firewall slash switch slash concentrator slash whatever slash whatever slash. Most of the network gear was security gear. And they made the call that the entirety of the network would therefore fall under the CISO, not the CIO. That's an I interesting approach. I inherited, I inherited that team. It was, it was a condition I walked into as the CISO owning network. And I, I was uh, at first very confused by that, but it later, it made sense and it came to work for me. But again, growing up in the room, I wasn't, you know, in a, in a land war with the CIO over who gets the network and ga, 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 you know, none of that was going on. It was all grown ups in the room, but I, I owned a network once as CISO, which I thought was kind of strange. And kind of cool, but I think we just came full circle. If you remember right up front, I said it's where the expertise lives. Mm-hmm. And if that expertise for that that fully integrated, what, what, what is it we used to call manufacturing to table, uh, vertically integrated tech stack yeah. 
where security was the key component. If security owned the expertise and had the expertise in house and it's a unified tech stack, um, I could see it making sense. And and so it's where the expertise lives, I think is, is, uh, is the theme there. So long as that placement supports the business. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, Andy Bennett, I got one last question for you. I ask every guest on the show, you are issued a magic wand. You can wave it and change one and only one thing about the world of cybersecurity, people, process, technology, the ecosystem, the political landscape, you name it. What do you change with your magic wand? I develop that language of business. I'm so jealous of Gap. I create a Rosetta Stone of cybersecurity and business. And I enable everybody to speak the same language. That's what I do. That is brilliant. I love it. Cybersecurity is Rosetta Stone. We need to go start a startup get VC money and call it Rosetta Stone of Cyber Inc. or something like that. And we'll get rich. Let's do this. I mean, Rosetta Stone is taken, but we'll right. definitely come Not up with cyber. something. Not of Cyber. Rosetta Stone uh, of Rosetta Cyber. Rosetta Stone of Cyber, I am in. And if anybody's listening, call us. There you go. Or the, uh, let's see, the Crypto Stone. I don't know. We'll come up with something cute. But let's get rich. I love this idea. Let's get rich. All right. Well, thank you, sir, for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>